Hey, I'm Matthew Camerata, and I, I want to welcome you back to another episode of A Pushing History. Today, it's episode 15, and we'll be discussing the Gilded Age. After we contextualize and explain this period, we'll explore the Knights of Labor, a large union of working-class people that heavily influenced society during this time period. Historians typically date this period's beginning in 1870 and its end in 1900. The term Gilded Age didn't come from a historian, but rather from a famous author. This author, Mark Twain, wrote a novel about the American society he was witnessing during the early 1870s. He titled the book The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. The book describes a society in which the wealth of the elite covers up the problems faced by the middle and lower classes. Society is glittering and covered in gold, but it is all merely a facade, and underneath that shiny exterior, life is difficult for working-class Americans. The Gilded Age came as the result of internal developments in the United States. The development of railroad systems, factories, and mines enabled rich men to reap profits upon profits. A variety of inventions altered society socially and economically. The nation shifted from a series of isolated communities to a more interconnected society built on the back of industry and progress. Out of this economic development and industrial progression came robber barons. Robber barons were wealthy and savvy businessmen who monopolized industries and controlled entire markets. They made tremendous profits, millions of dollars a year. While their workers made a few hundred dollars a year. The rise of this powerful and wealthy elite increased the deficit between the rich and the working class. Working people found themselves working over 10 hours a day. Children had to labor in mines and factories just to help put food on the table, while the rich sat sedentary, lavishly enjoying the fruits of their labor. It's important to understand the Knights of Labor movement in the context of this rapidly changing America. With more railroads and cities being built, America became very connected. People were able to travel and communicate much more effectively. With long work hours and rigorous lives, as well as a general sense of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment, the working and middle class became motivated to better society. They banded together into labor unions in order to effect broad economic and societal change. One such labor union sprung out of Philadelphia. Originally started by eight garment cutters in 1869, the Knights of Labor had humble beginnings. From its inception, it was a group that supported and contained all laborers, skilled and unskilled. Uriah Stevens, its founder, sought to alter the current state of labor and capital. He thought that it was simply a form of slavery, and wanted to enable working-class people to escape financial and social bonds and succeed unfettered by the cruel, merciless robber barons. The previous attempts at an organized, encompassing labor movement failed. Gaining popularity and with it momentum, the Knights of Labor had 9,300 member workers by the time Terence Powderly became its Grand Master Workman. 
He successfully prevented religious and ethnic differences from fracturing the young group, and assisted in its development into a unique movement. What really separated the Knights of Labor, and what really made them more radical than other labor unions, was its lack of emphasis on the difference between skilled and unskilled laborers. In adding unskilled laborers, the union came to be for the everyman and those who were excluded from the other labor unions. It was really one giant collective effort. Resultingly, there was an increased sense of solidarity among members, strengthening the organization as a whole. Even more notably was the inclusion of women and African Americans in its group. The inclusion of all these races and types of workers radicalized the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor bonded over a shared worldview. The Knights sought abolition of the laissez-faire capitalist system that they strong believe, strongly believed was keeping them at a disadvantage. Specifically, they sought an eight-hour workday, age restrictions on labor, better working conditions, higher wages, and a graduated income tax. The Knights of Labor like to maintain secrecy. In order to prevent those in financial power from affecting their movement and hindering it, their meetings were kept private from the prying eyes and ears of lawyers, bankers, and the financial elite. Interestingly enough, the media of the time found the society to be unsettling, even ominous because of its secrecy. The New York Tribune described it as a secret league of 800,000 men and a dangerous underground political organization. The Knights of Labor were dangerous, but not in a physical sense. A group of economic radicals, the Knights of Labor fought against inequality and attempted to better the conditions of the working class. They met in secrecy to discuss ways to hold the rich robber barons accountable for their treatment of the masses. Behind closed doors, members weren't discussing how to stage a violent coup. They were discussing social reform. Powderly attempted to lead the organization away from striking. He believed it should be the last step in the reform process. This lack of striking and physical conflict enabled the society to grow to about 700,000 members by 1886. The rise of the Knights of Labor took time, but its loss of credibility and effectiveness was swift. The Haymarket Affair involved the Knights of Labor going against their own standard of practice. Led by leaders who opposed Powderly's methods, the Haymarket Strike consisted of members of the Knights of Labor advocating for an eight-hour workday. They faced violent opposition from pro-business counter-protesters. Police attempted to break up the conflict, and a bomb was thrown into the crowd by an unidentified person. As a result, around 10 people died, and almost 100 were injured. The entire incident was blamed unjustly on the Knights of Labor. As a result, the Knights of Labor lost legitimacy, they were no longer a peaceful group, protesting for workers' rights, but a violent organization. The leaders of the Knights of Labor limited future strikes further, but many members of the organization wanted to go in a different direction. They wanted to continue striking. 
Overall, the assumption of blame from the Haymarket affair, coupled with a lack of future protests, dealt a killing blow to the Knights of Labor. Stuck between what people wanted and what leaders knew they couldn't do, the Knights of Labor became ineffectual, and its members left for another group, the American Federation of Labor. The defection of its member to other labor unions suggests that the Knights disbanded, the momentum of labor movement was shifted, not completely lost. The Knights of Labor were a response to economic inequality and poor conditions. It attempted to fight against the robber barons. The Knights of Labor tried to get policies implemented, but their indecisiveness and non-committal attitude with strikes marked with the beginning of the end for the Knights and would spell their eventual disillusion. After the Great Upheaval in 1886, which was a series of strikes against railroad companies because of pay cuts, laborers began to fear risking their livelihoods by maintaining the memberships in the unions. Additionally, leaders couldn't agree on a standard method of action. Powderly found opposition to his anti-strike stance in the society. In 1893, Powderly even resigned from his position as leaders in the Knights of Labor couldn't develop a unifying plan. Even if it didn't have the greatest results, the Knights of Labor did pave the way for the American Federation of Labor. The AFL consisted of skilled laborers and advocated for better working conditions. Learning from the mistakes of the Knights of Labor, it managed to affect policy-related change. The Knights of Labor also set a cultural precedent. It allowed women and African Americans to have an active role. It was a party of all workers, and didn't just fight for a few hundred disgruntled white men, but thousands of diverse laborers who just wanted a better life for themselves and their families. In this respect, it can be viewed similarly to the industrial workers of the world in terms of both groups' fervent opposition to the norm of other labor groups and unions of the time which was to exclude the unskilled. Its legacy lies in what it tried to accomplish. Its historical relevance lies in the courage of its members, the courage to fight for better conditions and higher wages in the face of uber-wealthy businessmen. It unified all producers to fight against non-producers, and even if it didn't win its battles, it helped workers eventually win some war and gain better conditions and better lives.